together. The text is quite straightforward. Um, And as we consider what we did last time in John's Gospel, you remember that Christ moved as one who is hunted and harried out of Judea, hunted and harried because it was very clear that God had blessed his ministry even beyond that of the ministry of John the Baptist. He passes through Samaria, and you remember that there he has a wonderful ministry where where many of the Samaritans are converted out of Sychar. And then he moves after two days there to Galilee. But in John's Gospel, you remember, we're told he goes to Cana rather than Nazareth because the prophet has no honor in his own country. And so he stays in Cana for some time, but, but as Luke's Gospel now fills us in with the chronology, he shows us that, that Christ does, in that Galilean ministry, move to Nazareth. And this text is very much related to the events that we saw at the end of John 4 in, in two ways. One, we notice that this is part of that same Galilean ministry, and we'll see that in the time to come. But we also notice this, that those self-same words that Christ spoke to his disciples about Nazareth, Christ repeats when he's in Nazareth himself. That indeed, in Nazareth, he would have no warm welcome. Not like what he did in Sychar. Not like he did among Samaritans. But our text shows the Lord Jesus Christ moving. And Luke's gospel, we have to remember, is is written in such a way by the Spirit's inspiration to emphasize particular ideas. And so as we do keep the chronology together with the gospel writers, we should pay careful attention to what Luke himself, as the inspired historian, is emphasizing. And what he's emphasizing here is given to us in the very first verse that we read. If you look at verse 14, (coughs) excuse me, We're told Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Now, friend, why is that so striking? Well, if you look back to the very first verse of Luke 4, you'll see that he is very careful to show us that Christ and all of his ministry is obedient. He would emphasize for us, having considered the context in John 4, that that while a persecution may very well have been the occasion for Christ leaving Judea, it was ultimately, its principal cause was obedience to God. He would show us an obedient Christ at the very beginning. One who always heeded the dictates of the divine spirit. One who never swerved. And so Luke conveys that to us at the very beginning. And and as he is led by the Spirit of God, he comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And everything that Luke describes here is quite customary. All of the actions that are involved here you would expect to see in a synagogue. For instance, (coughs) excuse me, he stood up to read. And as he stood up to read, there was delivered to him of the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the synagogue worship, you would have somebody who would be an attendant a minister of sorts, but his purpose was only to to bring to the appointed reader that portion of God's word to which they were appointed. There was somebody specifically appointed to read the law, somebody specifically appointed to read the prophets, and then somebody specifically appointed to read the writings, or the chetuvim. Christ is given from this minister the book of Isaiah. There are two things I'd mark just about that. 
The first thing is, is that the one who is to be reading was not really the one who chose the text. The text was part of an ordinary reading. And it just so happens in the providence of God that this day, this Sabbath day as Christ comes in to the synagogue, their ordinary reading was the 61st chapter of Isaiah. The other thing I would remark is again that all of this is quite customary. Christ, we're told, stands to read. And after reading, we're told, he closed the book, he gave it again to the minister and sat down. Now, it was also very customary, and even to this day is still the custom, that in synagogues you stand to read the word of God, but he who is to expound the text sits on an elevated platform. And so we're to recognize here that Christ is doing the work of a preacher. When we're told that he sits down, the idea there is not that he's finished with his work, he's only but beginning. He is now going to expound for us the text that he's just read. And what is that text? Well, in verses 18 and 19 of Luke 4, you'll notice that that is, of course, the first several verses of Isaiah 61. And as you see in this, you'll notice that his exposition of these texts is given to us quite concisely, quite forcefully, in just these words. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Friend, none, none but the final prophet of God could say with such authority these words. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. He not only took up the word of God, but the word of God himself came from his lips, as he is indeed the final prophet sent to the church of God. But that does raise a question. As we look at the text that Christ here has read, we have to ask, well, what was fulfilled? (coughs) In Isaiah 61, we're obviously given a picture of one who is anointed of God. Of course, you perhaps remember that the Hebrew word for anointing is that from which we get Messiah. And so we have the Messiah of God in Isaiah 61. But what of the Messiah do we see there? And what is fulfilled in our text, in the hearing of those gathered in the synagogue in Nazareth? I want you to notice how the text shows us the Messiah. First of all, he says that he will be one who preaches the gospel. In other words, the anointed one of Isaiah 61 will go from God and carry the will of God to the people of God. He will go from God carrying the revelation of God to the church. Then we're told that he'll heal the brokenhearted. We'll see in a moment, friend, but what you have to recognize there is that there you have the idea that this one goes from the people of God back to God. Or more accurately, he brings the people of God back to God. And then finally we're told that this one preaches deliverance and indeed sets at liberty those who are captive. Not only are we told here that he preaches Liberty, but he has the prerogative and the warrant to set sinners at liberty. Those three elements of this text are so very crucial. 
And perhaps this shows us why the Spirit of God would have us focus on this. This being the first instance in which we find Christ in his ministry expounding on the scriptures. If you look at these three elements of this text, you'll notice that we're told that he is one who will preach. He will go from God to the people as a prophet. He will be a sympathetic Messiah who will go to the people of God and seek to bring them to God to heal their broken hearts as a priest. And then we find here that he has not only the voice, but he has warrant, in fact, power to set at liberty those who are under the dominion of sin and of Satan as a king. Friend, this text in Isaiah 61 is so crucial because here you have a compendium of sorts of the entire work of the Messiah set out for us in his threefold office. He is prophet to preach the gospel, priest to heal the brokenhearted, king to set at liberty his people. And then, friend, you and I can't miss what Christ says the very first after having read this text. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He is saying that he is the perfect prophet, priest, and king of his people. Our text then teaches us so very plainly that Jesus perfectly executes all functions of his messiahship. Or as I've just said, Jesus is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And I want us to see this as the text itself shows these functions to us. I want us to see Christ in his prophetic work, first of all. Then secondly, his priestly, and at last, his princely work. So take, first of all, his prophetic ministry. It's described for us in the text, both in Luke's gospel, as he quotes Isaiah 61, that he will preach the gospel to the poor. (coughs) Now, you and I immediately have to ask the question, who are the poor? Who are the poor in Isaiah 61? Who are the poor in our text? In Isaiah 61, the word is, is duly translated meek. And so, friend, we recognize that those who are so described in this text are those elsewhere described as them that labor and are heavy laden. Those who are the bruised reed, the smoking flax of Isaiah 42. Those are the thirsty who have no money in Isaiah 55. Those who are athirst in Revelation 22. In other words, friend, we're told here that Christ is to preach the gospel to the meek, to those who are spiritually destitute, who in our very text will likewise be described as being brokenhearted, blind, bound, and bruised. Now, you may ask the question, and it would be right for you to ask, is it true that Christ's prophetic ministry is only to those who who have been humbled in such a way as to be described as meek? And obviously the answer is no. Obviously the ministry of Christ, like all of the ministers of the gospel in the Old and New Covenants, was sent to the visible church that was mixed with hypocrites. 
Those who were not truly meek before God. Those who in God's sight were obviously proud. Friend, you remember that Isaiah was called specifically in the sixth chapter of that prophecy to go and to make them dull of hearing. They were not meek. When God commissions Jeremiah, he summons him to go. But only with that wonderful promise that God will make it so that Jeremiah was a defensed city against the malice of those who would hear him. They were not meek either. Of course, friend, how many of the multitudes does Christ describe when he laments over Jerusalem? So it's not the case, friend, that that only the meek are warranted or called by the gospel. No, all, meek and proud alike, have a warrant from Christ to take hold of him. But, as our text teaches us, there is a particular sense in which this prophetic ministry belongs to the meek. The gospel is warranted to all, but particularly, friend, and exclusively the preaching of this gospel is effectual to the meek. And so it's right for Christ to be described as a prophet who brings the gospel to the poor. You see, those who are proud, they are those who are described as having not the need of a physician. And Christ specifically says of these ones that he came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Yes, they have a warrant to the proud to come to Christ. But particularly the gospel call is effectual exclusively to the meek. Friend, I'll just stress this point one, one, one bit further. When Christ describes through the words of the prophet that this is his ministry, he's saying that the only ones who will get good of his prophetic work are those who are brokenhearted, poor, bruised, not only actually so, but sensibly so. Those are the only ones, friend, who will really receive the benefit of his messiahship. And that's true because as the book of Proverbs so wonderfully reminds us, the full soul loatheth and honeycomb. The soul that is whole and its own estimation rich will not go to Christ for nourishment and healing. And so, friend, this text reminds us that those who get good, who actually benefit from Christ's prophetic ministry, <coughs> are those who are made meek by the grace of God. Christ preaches particularly then to the meek. This is the case, of course, in the first century, and so it is now. And friend, I just remind you what we said last time we were together. When we look at the prophetic ministry of Christ, we're to remember that this is not something that is is tied only to the first century. You remember that the apostolic witness in the Word of God is that Christ still teaches in the church. The voice of Christ is still to be heard in the 21st century, even as it was in the first, because it is still the Son of God who is prophet over his people. And yes, it's not, of course, as though Christ were physically present as he was in the first century. But the apostles make no difficulty by saying that through the preaching of his word, its faithful proclamation is to be received as the voice of Christ. Souls still may hear the voice of Christ today. 
And this text then teaches us that his prophetic ministry then and now is particularly in many ways turned to the meek. First of all, I want us to consider how that is so externally. The word itself is particularly turned to them. I want you to notice that that's the case in terms of its promises. There are so many that we we could read. Just take, for instance, a few. To this man will I look, says the Lord, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit. Friend, to whom does that promise belong? To those who have been made poor and contrite. Of course, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Friend, the word, even externally, is turned particularly to them. And so it's right for Christ's ministry so to be described, that it's turned particularly to the meek. And I want you to recognize, friend, immediately that we're not to see that this meekness, this humility is something that is of itself meritorious. It's not as though this, this humility that, that really is the work of the law, as we, we see described in Romans 7, that that somehow procures the grace of God for souls. That's not the case at all. It's just the case that these are the things, this law work, is that which really drives souls to Christ. When the law comes and it shows man what he really is, and the grace of God working upon that soul, it is that which will draw the soul to comply with the overtures of grace in the gospel. This is not a meritorious meekness. No, not at all. But friend, it is necessary. It is necessary in order for souls to see their need for Christ. But secondly, friend, I want you to notice as well that in an external sense, this prophetic ministry is still applied to the meek in terms of the ordinances of the gospel. In Ephesians 4, you remember how Christ says that as the ascended Christ, he has sent to the church his ministers. Then we're told that just very, very shortly thereafter, that through those ministries, you are to hear the word of Christ. But friend, the point that you and I have to see in this text is that even the external ordinances of the gospel, friend, those things too belong in a special way to the meek. Again, the preacher of the gospel is called to preach the gospel promiscuously, to offer Christ to all, even to the proud. But there is a particular sense in which their ministry is sent to the brokenhearted, to the poor just as Christ here describes his own work. But all of those, friends, are are external aspects of his prophetic ministry. We we come, though, to consider the internal. And I submit to you that that's the principal meaning of the text, that principally it's the internal work of Christ as prophet that's in view here. Just for illumination, allow me to highlight several texts that indicate this. Christ says in John 14... I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Note how Christ describes his ministry. He will send his spirit. (coughs) There, he's saying, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Elsewhere, he says, he will send him himself. And what does the spirit do? The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
Now, friend, all of that is, a, as a, is an aspect of the prophetic ministry of Christ. Why is that? Because what does the Spirit of God do? But he takes up the Word of God, the promises that are found therein, and he particularly applies them to the soul. Friend, it is the case that the minister of the gospel will preach promiscuously the gospel overtures. But the internal prophetic work of Christ is to take that external, that general promise, and as it were, to affix your name to it and say, this is yours. In fact, that's precisely the psalmist's experience, is it not? The psalmist says, remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. The word may be given generally to the church, but the grace of God working through his spirit under the prophetic ministry of Christ will take that word and will particularly apply it to the soul. And in that way, friend, I would submit to you that we are to see especially that Christ is the one who preaches the gospel to the meek. He not only offers it to them, but friend, he even goes, and as it were, particularly, gives it to them, affixes their name to those offers, and says, these things indeed are yours. This text, friend, should never be read in isolation from the truth that Christ speaks now and he applies the word still as Zion's prophet. Now. This is still his calling. And I suppose as we leave this point, there is a basic question. And that is, what is such a word to you and to me this morning? What does that word mean to you and to me? to hear the prophetic ministry of Christ taking the word of God and particularly, as it were, tacking it upon your own soul. Friend, is that something that is everything to you? Would you give worlds just to have more and more of that? We're told that his office is to preach the gospel to the meek, to the poor, Friend, do you have a great desire for that ministry? Do you have a great desire that you would, with the psalmist, be able to say through his ministration, you have caused me to hope in thy word, and that particularly? Secondly, we're told that he is to heal the brokenhearted. Now, at first brush, I suppose, you and I may see that this this work seems more like that of a physician than that of a priest. But I remind you of two things. As we consider this priestly aspect of the work, you remember that in Hebrews 5, there is made necessary to the office of the priest sympathy or fellow feeling. Hebrews 5 and verse 2. A priest must of necessity have sympathy for those whom he would bring to God. And so you see here a sympathetic Christ. But there's a second point that I want to highlight. This name, the brokenhearted, is quite striking. If you look at Psalm 34, you'll notice that that the psalmist tells us precisely who are the brokenhearted. He says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Brokenheartedness in the scripture is more often than not 
indicates not principally sorrow, but it indicates far more specifically the wounding of a conscience. That is genuine and godly contrition. Not when the heart is broken because of some loss, but when the soul is rent because it sees sin under, under the exposing light of the law. These, principally, in the scriptures, are called the brokenhearted. <coughs> and friend, when we consider that, that it's Christ's work to heal them, then you recognize that his work is so described because he would be the one who alone could heal the wounded conscience. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purges your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christians are described as having their hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. James Durham, I think, very helpfully reminds us that these texts are not saying that the conscience itself is polluted but rather that the conscience demonstrates or shows pollution to the soul. The evil conscience is that which exposes evil in the soul, and also that, that faculty which also begins to execute judgment. The worm that dieth not, as Christ will describe it in the Gospels. And what our text then teaches us, friend, is that Christ calms the aggravated consciences with his work. He is to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up those whose consciences are polluted. And, and friend, we could, I suppose, go in, into greater depth about the theological aspects of this truth. But there's an experiential element that you and I need to keep before us as well. What is this brokenheartedness? And why, why is this healing so necessary? And why should we crave this ministry from Christ? Friend, when the law begins to work, what does it do? That first of all must impress upon the soul that, that it is true, the soul that sinneth it shall die. But it must go beyond that. It must bring the soul to say the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. In other words, not only does the sinner, must he recognize that God's word is true, that sinners are to perish eternally that they by their sins have merited his eternal wrath. But it must go the next step. And that is it must say that God is just in this work. Friend, it's one thing for one, for one soul to be convinced that sinners go to hell. It's an entirely different thing for souls to be convinced that it's God for right to send them there. That, friend, is really the entrance of contrition. And what you recognize here then is, is there then is a sensible need. If you are convinced that God is right in dealing so with sin, then friend, there's a crucial existential crisis that follows. How may I be saved and yet this sin dealt with? Have you felt that crisis yourselves? Friend, have you looked at the odiousness of your own sin, the sinfulness of your own sin, and recognized that it rightfully deserves divine wrath? And then have you been brought to that second question, but then how then can I be saved? Friend, the genuinely contrite will come to a point where they are saying they do not crave 
pardon carte blanche. They do want to see their sins destroyed because they see that it's just and holy for God to do so. But that only brings them to that point of how then can I be saved? And and you see that in some sense in Micah 6, where after Israel is expostulated for her sinfulness, the prophet goes on in their name to ask, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands rivers of oil? Then shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see how contrition begins to work in the soul. He begins to wonder, is there something that I ought to do? And so he perhaps amends his life, simply tries, as it were, to to set the balance a bit more toward good than evil. But then he finds that fails. Conscience is still aggravated, and so he goes a step further, perhaps. And he says, well, I'll make use of the means of grace, as though those things themselves could merit God's favor. But then as he comes into the house of God, his conscience abrades him, shows him that his praises and his prayers, his hearing of God's word, all of those things are deficient and riven through with sin themselves. And so he's brought to that question, what sacrifice could I give? That last question, friends, should strike us because he says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? We know, of course, that God never commanded this. He loathes such things, the sacrifice of one's children. But it's important for us to remember, friend, why that question would be asked. Your life and mine and all of humanity, friend, if we, were to, if we were to offer all of our lives as sacrifice for sin, we would find that still there was an infinite debt that our lives could never pay. But what's striking about that second question is how that corresponds to what the prophet Jeremiah records. He says of that generation, they burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Now that, I suppose we could read over that quite quickly. But friend, when you look at this text, surely you and I should, should marvel at the fact that God says to offer their sons as a sacrifice for sin and never came into his heart even though the worth of their sons was still infinitely less than the corruption, the pollution, the guilt of their sin. He says it did not come into his heart to offer their sons for sin. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was in his heart. And friend, to the conscience, what does this say? Well, it answers that existential crisis. God has found a way to deal 
decisively with sin, as well as save the sinner. And conscience, friend, here is is simply then laying hold of the finished work of Christ, whereby he sees in it the justice of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, as well as his grace. Friend, this is something that you and I are to crave. If you've been awakened, if you've seen something of the sinfulness of sin, then you know of this crisis and how much you need Christ to apply his work in this way, to heal the brokenhearted, to show you that he himself has paid the debt, that God's justice is satisfied, your debt paid, and that all who look to him by faith are freed. And so we see here a wonderful picture, a description of the priestly function of Christ's work. But thirdly and finally, we come to his princely office. So described here is that he preaches deliverance to the captives and he sets them at liberty. And as I've already said, you have to see in this text that he's not, as it were, a hopeless freedom fighter. He's not simply somebody who's who's saying that it is, wouldn't it be wonderful to, to know liberty? No, friend, he has warrant and he has power to set at liberty captive. He doesn't just preach deliverance, he actually liberates. But I want you to notice how this is described for us in the text. First of all, we see his method in the fact that he is described as recovering of sight to the blind. Now, if you were to turn back to Isaiah 61, you'd notice that that text never includes a mention of the blind in our translations. But it's, it's rightfully there, because if, if you were to look at the Hebrew, you would notice that the second verse, where it speaks of opening, uses the word principally used in the Old Testament to describe the opening of the eyes, the opening of the blind eyes. And so we see that this liberty consists of Christ liberating them in such a way as to give them sight. And then he goes on to describe them as, as these ones who have been not only captive, but bruised. And here you have the idea that this liberation consists of a release from affliction. They were bound, blind, bruised. And yet this text teaches us that it is Christ's station to liberate his people and to do so lawfully and powerfully. Fred, I'll, I'll just quickly run through three ways that you and I can think about this liberation. First of all, the scriptures hold out that, that this liberation consists of a freedom from the dominion of sin, Satan, the world. In Luke 11, Christ describes himself thus. He says, a strong man armed keepeth his palace. His goods are in peace, but when a stronger than he, that is Christ, when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. <clears throat> Friend, what you and I are to see in that text, yes, is the omnipotence of God manifest in the redemption, the liberation of his people, but you're also supposed to recognize that it was his right to take them in the first place. No longer are they under the prince and power of the air. No longer is the dominion of sin there for them. Christ has in fact liberated them from the dominion of all. 
They are truly free. But secondly, friend, this dominion also includes a freedom from the law as a covenant of works and a freedom from the curse. In Romans 7, perhaps you have one of the most concise examples of this freedom. Where there the apostle says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. And then thereafter the apostle gives something of the marriage analogy. He says, You know that a man is is lawfully bound to his wife, <coughs> excuse me, such that if she leaves him, well then she's an adulteress. She's broken the law. But once, of course, the, the man has died, then the woman is liberated to marry another. What's striking about that analogy is what follows. Because you might ask the question, well, who is the man and who is the woman in the analogy? Is the man Christ and the woman the church? Or, or more directly, is the man the law and the, the woman, the believer. The apostle answers that for us, but strikingly. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Know what he says. He doesn't say that your husband, the law, died. He's saying that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you died. It's a very crucial element of that text that I think is quickly overlooked. But then he says, therefore you are freed to marry another. We are delivered from the law. He goes on to say that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Friend, what does that mean? It means that whenever the law of God comes to you and it comes to me, it comes, friend, with all of the same precepts as were given to Adam in the garden. The precepts are identical. But the condition is no longer do this and live. The urging is because you live, do this. Friend, in other words, by being freed from the laws of covenant of works, we are liberated from its curse and its condemning power. But then thirdly and finally, friend, we should think of this liberation especially as it relates to death. When it came to Christ, we're told it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And so, friend, it's necessary that all of those who are united to him, as Thomas Goodwin says, as it were attached to his belt, that they too could not be held under death. And that, of course, we're speaking there of both the first and the second death. Friend, the first death has lost its sting through the Lord Jesus Christ. And believers themselves, through union with him, need not worry about the second death either. They're liberated from all. And all of this, friend, you are to recognize as the work of one who not only possesses, not only possesses the prophetic ministry to pronounce such freedom, but the kingly, the princely work and warrant to publish that warrant and to procure that liberty. And so as we close and apply this text to ourselves, 
Friend, it's important for us to look at how the direction of Christ's ministry is described. It's described to the meek, the brokenhearted, the blind, and the bruised. To those who are actually so, and to those who are sensibly so. Friend, do you come into this place this morning with a whole heart? Meaning in the sense that that you have no need. You come in here without craving anything from Him. Friend, if you came in here without a real sense of need, I'd submit to you that you've not come in here at all in a right way. If you don't find yourself craving something from Christ, as we come under His ministry, even in this way this morning, friend, certainly we're not sensible that we are a broken-hearted, a blind, or a bruised people. We need to be made sensible of our, of our need. Christ's ministry is described particularly to them, because, of course, friend, it is to them exclusively that they will receive the benefits of his work. But I want you to notice, friend, for our comfort, that what Christ here describes is being fulfilled, is still fulfilled in him. And our Christ, when he ascended, did not leave behind him the office of his Messiahship. He is still prophet, priest, and king for his people. This 18th of February, 2024, Christ, our Redeemer, is still under obligation to fulfill all three of these parts of his work just as he was in the first century. For Christians, friend, that ought to be a boon of comfort, unlike any other. He was anointed to this work that was he was solemnly invested with the office, but he was also equipped, according to his humanity, with all of the graces necessary to be faithful in the discharge of every aspect of the work we've considered this morning. And he is still so gracious. He is still so equipped. That sympathetic heart that Christ exercised on the earth as he functioned as a priest. The writer of the Hebrews said he took that with him when he ascended on high. That interest to see the meek given the promises of the gospel. Oh friend, that desire is still with our living Redeemer. And so he still sends the comforter to them. And oh, that kingly power and prerogative whereby he liberates captive souls. Well, friend, our strong man is still on the throne and is still, friend, in the discharge of that office. And so, friend, believers should take comfort from this text. This is not only a historical reality, but on this Lord's Day, as I'm speaking to you, There is a living Christ who fulfills all that we've considered this morning. The last part of the text that we've not considered is that which is quoted from Isaiah 61, where we're told that he was to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And friend, all that that means is that that exhortation in 2 Corinthians 6 is also part of his calling. The apostle there says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the time. 
friend, when men and women may make good, may get good from this work of the Messiah. There are two aspects to that that you and I can't miss. First of all, it's an invitation. It's an encouragement because, friend, you need not wait for another moment. The offer is made to you now. The benefits are held out to you now. You need not wait for tomorrow. You're encouraged to come today. But it's also a warning or a limitation. The offer is now. You're not promised another moment. You're not promised another moment. There's a story we told several times by a number of our forebears of a man who was condemned to die in Scotland in the 17th century. He was a gross malefactor. It was very clear that the man um, had lived in sin and was justly condemned to die. He was notorious for his crimes. All of the kingdom knew about him. But there were a number of ministers who went to his prison cell to visit him. And in the course of those conversations, the Lord evidently did a work of great grace. And that once gross sinner very quickly confessed that he was rightfully condemned by the civil court. And more than that, that he was rightfully condemned by the law of God. And then as the ministers spoke to this man about the Lord Jesus Christ, the man recognized both the reality and the sufficiency of those gospel offers, even for him. And friends, so many of those ministers who met with him very quickly discerned that this really did appear to be a work of grace. The man went to the gallows thereafter. And after telling the crowd that he died rightfully, that it was just for the law to condemn him, which I wonder how many friends had ever heard such a criminal say such things, He then said, and yet I have confidence that never a sinner perished looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friend, what that man is testifying to is that he has tasted and has had the benefit of the ministry of Christ as so described in our text. Humbled by the law, worked upon by the Spirit of God, the gospel came to him, preached to him. And friend, he heard the voice of the Son of God. Then, friend, a broken man, a broken-hearted and a contrite man, had from Christ's own handwriting the warrant of pardon. Though condemned by the civil court, he was exonerated in heaven and he knew it. And though, friend, a prisoner of men, and rightfully so, he knew he was a free citizen of heaven. Because he received this from the King of Kings. Friend, he died in peace. And for many of our reformers afterward, throughout the 17th century, they regarded that as one of the most incredible works of grace that they themselves had witnessed with their own eyes. But friend, it was just a work of a soul closing with Christ as a faithful, perfect prophet, priest, and king. Friend, may we close with him in in the same way this day. Amen.